You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Our gracious God, you are our portion, and you are our refuge and our shield. You are the one who has provided all that we enjoy and all that we are blessed with. It all comes from your good hand. And we thank you that you have provided with it also your word, which is sufficient and true and able to lead us into all that we need for life and godliness. And we thank you that we can affirm with absolute confidence that your word is true and that your ways are true and that your grace is sufficient. And so we ask that during our time here this morning in studying your word, that you would truly open our eyes and our hearts, that we may behold in your word wonderful things, and that you would be glorified through the understanding of your people. Keep our time here together focused, we pray, and may the teaching that we have here this morning be clear in all respects, so that we might give to you hearts of obedience and love and praise. We thank you, our great God, in the name of Christ. Amen. John chapter 15, we're going to read together the first 11 verses. John 15, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. I had a friend that I went to Bible college with who, he was a Canadian, in fact, he went to the same high school that Deidre went to, and uh, we met at Bible college, and we became good friends over the course of my years there. And uh, he ended up meeting on the foreign mission field a lady, and they got married. She was an American from the California area, so... For a period of time, he lived down in central California, right around the Bay Area, only a couple of, of hours from where my family was at. And a few years back, we were down there visiting uh, Stacy and his wife, Michelle. And uh, he had a job delivering uh, industrial strength cleaning chemicals to all of the food manufacturing plants and food producing plants that were sort of spread out in that central California area. And uh, he had he had routes that would take him far down south into California and some that took him up into northern California. And uh, so he got to visit the like the, the plants that produce the tomato sauce and the tomato paste. They process all the foods. So when we were down there one time, he took me on one of his routes with him, and he showed me some of the areas that he got to deliver with, too, and some of the plants where, where he would visit. And uh, it was fascinating driving through that area of central California because there there's a valley that goes from, like, Redding in the north all the way down in the south to Santa Barbara. And in the south, it's called the San Joaquin Valley, and in the north, it's called the Sacramento Valley. And it's a very fertile area, a very fertile plain in there. It's, it's, it's a huge swath of land right at the center of, of California. And that was sort of his, his route, his territory. 
And he took me past some of the farms and we would drive past these fields that were uh, filled with pistachio trees and almond trees and cherry trees and peach trees and uh, vines and, and grape vineyards and, and grape fields. And it was it was fascinating to me because everything was laid out so perfectly and so symmetrically. Have you ever been driving down places where the rows are perfectly aligned? And I don't know what that grid work pattern is, but you can look in like four different directions and everywhere you look is a set of rows. I don't know how they do that, but it's all organized and it's structured and it's it's symmetrical and it's it's all perfect. It's the kind of garden that I like. Everything lined up like that. And this is this is my type of garden, but on a massive scale, acres. The type of garden that my wife would never let me have. So that's why I liked it. And you could just drive past those for hours. And he told me that, that that valley is very fertile. And and I forget the exact number. In fact, I texted him last night so I could get the exact number. But he shared with me that something like two-thirds or three-quarters of all the fruits and nuts in that are consumed in America come out of that valley. Now, if you had asked me, I would have guessed that all the fruits and nuts in America come out of California. But apparently it's only half or three-quarters of them. And just so that we're, we're not, you're not unclear about what I'm saying, I'm saying everything that comes out of California is a fruit and a nut, just that all the fruits and nuts come out of California. So it's a very fertile valley. And uh, I noticed something as we were driving through, past all these plantations that you would have acre after acre, field after field, farm after farm, and they would plant all of the same plants on, in sort of one big field. And I noticed something, that all of the plants, all of the trees, whether they were trees or vines, all of them looked alike. All of the all of the grapevines looked alike. All of the pistachio trees looked alike. All the cherry trees, they had the same shape. They were the same size. They had the same form to them. All of them were pruned identical. Now, the farmers, they prune the trees that way, not because they value uh, uniformity. In other words, all the farmers don't get together at the beginning of every year and say, okay, what are our trees going to look like this year? Let's... Let's do a candelabra this year, or let's let's do the shape of an elephant this year. They, they don't do that. They're not interested in all of them looking the same. They don't. The farmers don't get together and say, "Well, I, I want I, I want all of our trees to look differently." They're not concerned about whether they look the same. They're not concerned about whether they're they're all identical. They're not concerned about the size of the plant. You know what they prune for? Fruitfulness. That's what they want. They want production. They don't care if it's an ugly tree. See, I go I go with this for my my. Cherry trees in my front yard every year. I, I go after production. So I butch them back really bad at the beginning of every spring or every fall. I cut them back, and my wife just always just shakes her head. She can't. It's ugly. It's ugly. It's ugly. I said, well, let the leaves come out on it. It'll look better after a while. But I'm not interested in looking good. What do I want? I want cherries. That's what I want. I'm not interested. I don't care what shape it is. I don't care how big it is. I don't care how pretty it looks. I just want cherries. That's what I want. And I want gallons and gallons and gallons of them. I am after fruitfulness with my trees. And the farmers, they're after fruitfulness. They're not pruning so that everything looks the same. They're not interested in big plants. They're not interested in pretty plants. You know what they're interested in? Fruitful plants. Plants that bear fruit. That's the only thing the farmer cares about. Plants that bear fruit. So now we're in John chapter 15, and we're beginning this analogy of the vine and the branches that Jesus gave. And this is the final night. Remember, this is the final night of his time with his disciples. And we need to remember that we are not disconnecting this from what has come previously in chapter 13 and 14 for two reasons. First, because some of the themes in chapter 15 flow naturally out of chapter 14. We'll see that in the weeks ahead. But also because there is something that happened previous this evening, which has a bearing upon rightly interpreting this analogy that we have of the vine and the branches in John chapter 15. So the very first thing that we encounter in John 15 is this statement, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Now that I am statement is one of what we call seven of the, what we call the I am statements. I am the true vine. Often in John's gospel, Jesus took that divine title, I am, ego I me, 
And he applied it to himself. It came straight out of Exodus chapter 3 where Moses met God at the burning bush uh, and God gave that title to Moses. And Jesus applied that title to himself on numerous occasions throughout the Gospel of John. Most notably in John chapter 8 where he would say, he said on two different occasions, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And Jesus was saying, unless you believe that I am, that is, I am the I am of Exodus chapter 3, 15, uh, Exodus chapter 3, you will die in your sins. And when he just, when he says, unless you believe that I am, it's kind of awkward, even in Greek grammar, it's a little awkward because it kind of asks for some sort of a, I am what? Some, something to fill that in. But he would say these awkward statements which would point to the fact that he is the I am. On seven different occasions, he actually filled in with a descriptive noun or a, a descriptive something that kind of described his his nature, his character, his person, and his work. And we see seven of these in John. And this is the seventh, the final of the seven I am statements. And I'm I'm just not gonna I'm not gonna review them, but I will read them to you what the other six were, just so you remember all of them. In John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. In John 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. John 10, 9, or 7 and 9, I am the door. John 10, 11 and verse 14, I am the good shepherd. John 11, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And now this is the seventh and final one, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. So that, those are the I am statements in John's gospel. Each one kind of gives us some look at the nature, the character, the work, the person of Christ. The gist of this one, I am the true vine, what we are to, where we're to draw from that is the understanding that Jesus is the source of life and fruitfulness for his people. That's the main idea of that analogy. That Jesus is the source of life and fruitfulness for his people. Now there are four characters in this analogy and we have to be familiar with all four of these. Uh, they are numbered, they are named here or mentioned here in the first two verses. There is, first of all, the vine. Jesus identifies himself as the vine. There is the vine dresser. The Father is the vine dresser. There are the fruitful branches, which are identified as the disciples. And then there are the barren or fruitless branches, which are uh, not identified. And interestingly enough, out of the four people, the, the fruitless branches are the ones that are not specifically and distinctly identified as to what Jesus has in mind. So those are the four characters. And the, our time today is going to be taken in examining and identifying these four elements to this analogy and then Next week, in part two of this message, Lord willing, we're going to look at the pruning work of the Father, how the Father prunes the vine, and what the end of that pruning work is. How does, how does the Father prune his vine, and to what end? So let's look at these four characters, these four elements of the analogy. First is the vine, and Jesus identifies himself not just as a vine, and not just as the vine, but as the true vine. And the word true there is a word that was used to to distinguish something that was genuine from something that was counterfeit. In other words, when the word was used, it was oftentimes used to to sort of set something true apart from something false. You always had to have something else in mind, which was the counterfeit or the, the false or the imperfect or the disingenuous article when you describe something as the true. So for him to say, I am the true vine, he is distinguishing himself as the perfect as opposed to the imperfect the true as opposed from the counterfeit or the false, the genuine article as opposed to that which might not be genuine. So now the question becomes, what then does Jesus have in mind when he describes himself as the true vine? What is he contrasting himself with? And a lot of ink has been spelt, and a lot of people suggested a lot of different things. You already have in mind where I'm going because we went there last week with Psalm 80. But I'll give you some idea of what other people have suggested Jesus has in mind by the true vine, some or by the false vine. Some have suggested that in that upper room where Jesus was meeting, 
that there was a grapevine growing outside of the room. And it sort of had crawled up the side of the building over time. And, and the leaves and the branches, the vines of this were kind of laying inside the windowsill. And as Jesus is sitting there that evening, uh, contemplating things with his disciples, he glances across them and contemplatively looks at this vine and, and sees the vine coming in the window and, and, and uses that as an illustration. Uh, obviously, that's nowhere in the text, right? Jesus is contrasting himself with, you know, an actual vine that was crawling in the window. Others have suggested, as I mentioned last week, that Jesus was wandering on his way out from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane. And as they left the city of Jerusalem, they're wandering out through the countryside. And, and he happened upon a vineyard or a stone wall with a vine growing up the side of that. And he thought, this is a great opportunity for an object lesson. So he called his disciples around and said, look, look at this vine. Well, I am the true vine that he was contrasting himself with some plant that he passed on the way out to the Garden of Gethsemane. Others have suggested, because there was a vine carved in the stonework on one of the entrances to the temple, others have suggested that what Jesus was doing is as he was walking out of the city of Jerusalem, they walked past the temple entrance, and there carved in the stonework was the picture of a vine. And uh, that Jesus pointed to that, and he used that as an analogy, uh, as to contrast himself with, with that sort of carved artificial vine. Some have suggested, and, and this is very creative, that what Jesus is contrasting himself with is the wine of communion and the vine and the fruit and the juice that came out of communion. Because earlier this evening, he had instituted the Lord's Supper and he had said, this is my body, which is broken for you, and this is my blood, which is shed for you in the new covenant. And that what he was contrasting is himself with the vine that actually produced the wine for the communion. And New Testament scholar um, Hendrickson, William Hendrickson, actually puts this in his commentary and suggests this, though Hendrickson admits there's there's no direct connection or allusion to that in the text at all. But Hendrickson exists because the Lord's Supper was instituted that night. There must be a connection there. So he kind of imagines this connection between those. It's interesting that somebody would insist upon that, not only because there's no direct mention of it in the text, but interestingly enough, John's Gospel is the only one of the four Gospels that doesn't even mention the institution of the Lord's Supper. So you would think that if that was on Jesus' mind and that was on John's mind, that John might have mentioned the Lord's Supper at some point in this evening just to kind of give us some connection as to what he meant. Now the problem with all of those, the vines crawling up the wall and in the window and on the wall at the temple and on the wall of a vineyard and the communion, all of those ideas have one thing in common. And that is that they fail to understand the Old Testament background for this analogy, which was Psalm 80 and Isaiah 5 and Jeremiah 2 and Hosea 10. And is there another one? I don't know, you tell me. I preached it last week. You should have been paying attention. So all of that Old Testament background for that, that vine analogy, it fails to account for that. And I think that what Jesus is doing here is he is doing the same thing he has done on a number of other occasions. He is taking something from the Old Testament and he is saying, remember that? That was imperfect. That was incomplete. It was a type, a shadow, a symbol. I am the reality. I am the fulfillment of this. I am the substance of this. That thing pointed to me, and I am better than that ever was. We saw him do this back in John chapter 6 with the bread and the manna. Do you remember that? He fed the multitude in the wilderness, and then they came to him the next morning and said, Hey, give us more of this bread. I mean, Moses fed us in the wilderness day after day after day. And they believed in him. They wanted to make him king when they saw that he could create food out of nothing. They wanted to make him king. And they were willing to take him by force and make him king. And they said, Moses gave us the manna in the wilderness. And Jesus pointed to the manna in the wilderness and said, what Moses gave you could never do what I can do for you. I am the true bread. That manna was incomplete. It pointed to me. You talk about the manna in the wilderness. I am the true bread that brings real life. He did it in John chapter 8 when he said, I am the light of the world. 
That would happen during the Feast of Tabernacles, during that final closing ceremony when they would light these four bright lamps in the temple complex at night. And the city of Jerusalem and the gold around the temple would just shine like a Christmas tree that you have never seen. It was, it was luminous glow. And in the midst of that assembly and in that service and in context of that worship, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. This lighting of the lamps, which is supposed to indicate that Israel is the light of the world and a light to the Gentiles, I'm the fulfillment of that. That is a picture of me. I'm the greater light. I do something that Israel never did. And now he's doing the exact same thing with the vine. He is saying Israel was the vine. God designated it as a vine. God called it a vine in the Old Testament. But Israel failed. Israel was faithless. Israel was fruitless. Fruitless. Israel was disobedient and rebellious. I'm the true vine. I'm the true vine. And what he is doing is he is pointing to something in the Old Testament that all of the disciples would have understood. And he is saying that is an incomplete analogy. I am the fulfillment of that. I am what Israel could never be. I am greater than Israel. I'm greater than that analogy. I have given obedience to the Father. So he is contrasting himself with that, with that failed vine. And in doing so, he is, he is highlighting something about himself that is different than Israel. All of the times, Isaiah 5, Jeremiah 2, Hosea 10, Psalm 80, and all of the ones that I didn't mention that you're remembering, all of those illustrations from the Old Testament where, where God compared Israel to a vine, Every single one of them, without exception, was for the purpose of pointing to Israel's fruitlessness, their faithlessness, and their failure to do what God called them to do. Every one of them. Every time God compared Israel to a vine, it was to point out their fruitlessness. And here's how Jesus is different. Jesus is not a fruitless vine. He is a vine that produces fruit through his people. So he's the fruitful vine. And he is the true vine because he has yielded obedience to the Father. In fact, it is in the context of him describing his own obedience that we have this analogy of him being the true vine. Look back at the end of chapter 14, verse 31. Don't forget this. Jesus said then, But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. I am the true vine. Now compare that with the Old Testament. When Israel was called a vine, it was because Israel never did exactly what the Father commanded them to do. They failed. They were disobedient and fruitless and bore no good fruit for the Lord whatsoever. But Jesus is the true vine because He yields obedience to the Father. And listen, the obedience that He yielded to the Father is an obedience yielded on our behalf. We get the benefits of that obedience. Not only His active obedience, but His passive obedience. All His righteousness that He performed in accordance to obeying the law and doing exactly what the Father gave him to do, and his passive obedience of suffering on the cross in our place, all of the obedience that he rendered was for the good of his people and for the branches who are attached to him. So it is his obedience that is highlighted in chapter 15. Look at chapter 15, verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I've kept my Father's commandments. So here we have sandwiched between references to his obedience to the Father in all things is this analogy where he is the vine. And the disciples could not help, could not help, but here in there all the references to the Old Testament, the vine of the Old Testament. Israel failed. They were disobedient. The true vine is never disobedient. He always did exactly what the Father gave him to do and what the Father told him to do. So he's the true vine because he was obedient to the Father. He's also the true vine because he provides life and fruitfulness to his people. Hear this as a Jew would hear these words, I am the true vine. Think of how a Jew would hear that. Imagine that you had been raised all of your life to believe and to know that fruitfulness and covenant blessing and righteousness and grace and the favor of God 
came with being attached to the vine, Israel. And then when Jesus says, I am the true vine, what is he saying? Covenant blessing and grace and righteousness and the favor of God do not come by being attached and associated with the vine, Israel. It comes by being vitally attached to me, the true vine. He is saying to the disciples, no longer will you think in terms of receiving covenant blessings through that nation. The covenant blessings do not flow through that nation. The covenant blessings of the new covenant do not flow through a nation. They flow by being vitally connected to the one who is the true vine, not the one who is the counterfeit and disobedient vine. So that is the vine, the true vine. Now look a second of all, the second personage, and that is the vine dresser. My father is the vine dresser. Uh, some people have kind of seized upon that phrase, that wording there to suggest that Jesus is lesser than the Father. See, if you if you deny the deity of Christ, you deny the equality of the Father and the Son, then you might look at a phrase like this and say, well, who, which is greater, the farmer or the vine? Obviously, which one's greater, the farmer or the vine? You tell me. The farmer is greater than the vine, right? We all recognize that. And they would say, see, here's Jesus saying, I'm just a lowly vine. And then you got the Father who is the vine dresser. So Jesus, therefore, must be lesser, of less value than the Father. But the point of the analogy is not to describe the relationship between the trinities or the equality or the lack thereof between the Father and the Son. What is the point of the analogy? What is Jesus driving at? That true life and fruitfulness comes by being vitally attached to Him. So the analogy is not intended to somehow tell us whether the persons of the Trinity are equal. The analogy is intended to show us that true fruitfulness and true life comes only by being connected to Jesus Christ. So it's not an analogy describing that. You can't make Christ out to be lesser just because He says that. So who is the vine dresser? The vine dresser is the father. And this is an analogy that all the Jews have been familiar with, with a vine dresser and what a vine dresser did and who a vine dresser was. And the word translated vine dresser there is georgos, G-E-O-R-G-O-S. Sound familiar? G-E-O-R-G-O-S, georgos. It's actually the word from which we get our English name, George, which means farmer. It referred to one who cultivated the land, one who tilled up the ground, one who planted plants, one who tended the plants. And other than the, other than planting and tending and watering and caring for and nurturing the vine, the vine dresser had two primary responsibilities. His responsibility was, number one, to prune off all of the branches that did not bear fruit. Second, his responsibility was to prune, cut the branches that did bear fruit so that they would bear more fruit. And the vine dresser knew exactly how to do this. He knew exactly what to do with every tree and every plant in the vineyard in order to accomplish that very end, which was to produce more fruit. Now, describing the work of the vine dresser, you and I can kind of hear a lot of the analogy in there, right? That his job was to cut off the unfruitful branches and then to prune, still cutting, but to prune the branches that did bear fruit so that they may bear more fruit. Because what is the object of a vine dresser? The object of a vine dresser, the goal of a vine dresser, is productivity, to produce the maximum amount of fruit possible. So Jesus is the vine, the Father is the vine dresser. That's the first two of these four. And now we get into waters that are a little bit more dicey and require us to think a little bit more clearly than we have up to this point. Because this is really straightforward so far, isn't it? I am the true vine. That's not difficult to figure out who he is. And my Father is the vine dresser. It's not difficult to figure out who that is. But now the question becomes, who are the fruitful branches and who are the barren and fruitless branches? And we're going to deal with the fruitful branches first. So we're going to take the second one first and then the first one second. Just for no other reason but to be confusing. Actually, there is a reason. There is a method to my madness. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. We're going to set that just aside for just a second. Let's identify who the fruitful branches are. Who are these branches that bear fruit? 
the end of verse 2, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. Now, who are the fruitful branches? In short, it is the 11, the disciples, the ones to whom you speak in. Why do I say that? Look down at verse 8. My Father is glorified by this, that you, that is the 11, bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Who are the ones who bear much fruit? Who are the fruitful branches? They're believers. They're believers. They are, they are the believers who are have a vital connection with Jesus Christ. Jesus is the vine. The fruitful branches are connected to that vine. They are in no way severed from that vine. They receive nourishment and health and vitality and sap and fruitfulness. All that the branch has, it gets from the vine. And if you sever that branch for even a moment, it's over. The, the, the flow of life and fruitfulness comes to an end immediately. So the, the branches that bear fruit are the disciples, the true believers. Men, the eleven, and men like them who are vitally connected to Jesus, and so they have the life of the vine in the branch, them, and that life ends up inevitably producing the fruit that the vine dresser desires. So the fruitful branches, in short, are believers, true believers. Now who are the fruitless branches? Now, this is a bit more difficult because, as I mentioned at the beginning, of the four characters, the vine, the vine dresser, the fruitful branches, and the barren branches, the barren branches are the only ones that are not specifically and directly identified in the text. There's no place in here where Jesus says the fruitless branches are this. So we have to kind of discern who they are and what Jesus is talking about. But this is it, it is right at this point in handling this analogy that the wheels sort of fly off many, many a handling of this text. And we have to make sure that we rightly identify who the barren branches are because it will help us to stay away from an error, that an interpretive error that comes up in the text. And it will keep us out of false doctrine. And it'll help us to, it'll help us to get the point of the analogy as Jesus intended us to get the point of the analogy. In other words, if we don't understand who the fruitless branches are, we're going to miss the whole point. So it's important to go slow and to think carefully and to think critically. J.C. Ryle said this about this verse. He said, perhaps no sentence in the analogy is more perverted and arrested and misapplied than this. He went on to say, of this, this sentence is the favorite weapon of all Arminians, of all who deny the perseverance in faith of believers. End quote. What did he mean by that? If you're an Arminian and you want to prove that it's possible to lose your salvation, this is the verse you go to. Verse 2. I have had conversations with people who believe it is possible to lose your salvation and verse 2 is where they want to go. The branches that bear no fruit, they're plucked away. And then they love, they, oh, they love verse 6. They love it. Look at verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. These are the fruitless branches. So an Arminian would say, see, that is a perfect description of somebody who can lose their salvation. They bear fruit for a period of time. They're part of the branch, they're connect, or the part of the vine, they're connected there. But over a period of time, they become fruitfulness, fruitless for whatever reason. They become fruitless for whatever reason. Maybe their own sin or they're deceived. Or they wake up one morning and say, you know what? I really liked salvation yesterday. I don't like it so much today. So I don't want to be in Christ anymore. I'm walking away from the faith. And so the Father cuts them off. And though they were really alive and really filled with grace and really regenerate at one point, they become unfruitful. And then the Father cuts them off and throws them away and they dry and they are burned forever. They love verse 2 and they love verse 6 because those are the two best verses if you want to prove that it's possible to lose your salvation. Now, people who believe you can lose your salvation, they don't want to talk about John 6. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. This is the will of the Father, that he sent the Son down into the world to save those whom the Father has given to him, and he will raise all of them up on the last day, and I will lose none. They don't want to talk about John 6. They don't want to talk about John 10. My sheep hear my voice, and they come to me, and I give to them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. 
The Father who gave them to me is greater than all, and nobody will be able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. They don't want to talk about John 10. You know where they want to go? John 15, verse 2. So the question is, who are these fruitless branches? Well, the fruitful branches, we can sort of decide, or we can figure out who the fruitless branches are by comparing them to the fruitful branches. What is true of the fruitful branches? These are believers, and we can discern that because it says that they are prove their disciples, that prove that they are disciples by their fruit bearing in verse 8. They are also the objects of the Father's love and of the Son's love in verse 9. They keep the commandments of the Father in verse 10 and of the Son in verse 10. They are not cast away. They are pruned. They bear fruit. They bear more fruit. They bear much fruit. That's a, that's a description of the fruitful branches. The exact opposite is true of these barren branches. They are, in the words of verse 2, taken away. In the words of verse 6, they are cast aside. They are dried up. They are thrown into the fire and they are burned. And consequently, everything that is true of the fruitful branch is not true of the fruitless branch. They do not have their prayers answered, as Jesus says in verse 7. They do not prove that they are disciples, as Jesus says in verse 8. They are not the objects of the Father's love and of the Son's love, verse 10. They do not keep the commandments of the Father and of the Son, and they do not abide. And the word abide just means to remain or to continue in one one's place. So these are people who leave and depart. Now, does that describe a believer to you? Does it describe somebody who was at one time a believer to you? It doesn't. There is no place in John's Gospel, which is all about belief, believing, and believers. There is no place in John's Gospel where a believer is described in those terms. So whatever the fruitless branch is, it is not a true believer in any genuine sense whatsoever. So now I would ask you this. If these genuine, if these fruitless branches are not genuine believers but they are instead unbelievers, then to whom is Jesus referring when he talks about the fruitless branch? Let me ask it another way. Present for this analogy were all of the characters so far. You have the vine present, that's Jesus. You have the Father present, though he wasn't present there physically or visibly. He was certainly there spiritually present, and Jesus mentions him some 23 times in chapter 14. So the Father is there. The fruitful branches, that is the 11, were certainly there. Can you think of somebody who was there that evening or maybe no longer there that evening that this would describe? Judas. Judas. Judas is the fruitless branch. Judas is the one plucked up, taken away, cast aside, dried out, and burned with fire. These are Judas branches. He is not describing people who are regenerate, who stop producing fruit and the Father cuts them off and burns them and allows them to perish. He's not describing that at all. The eleven are the fruitful branches and the Father prunes them. They are the objects of His love. But there are also fruitless branches. There are fake branches. There are branches that appear to be part of the true vine, but they are not part of the true vine. They do not produce any genuine fruit. What Jesus has in mind here is Judas branches. Judas branches. Judas was never a believer. He is called a devil in chapter 6, verse 70, when Jesus says, one of you is a devil. He was speaking of Judas. He's called the son of perdition, meaning one destined to destruction. Judas betrayed innocent blood for 30 pieces of silver, and he died an impenitent and unregenerate man who never repented and never found the grace of salvation. That is the type of person who is described here. Judas was one attached to the twelve. Do you get that? He was among them. Do you remember that? Among them. He heard the teaching that the other 11 heard. He, he saw the same miracles that the other 11 saw. And when Jesus predicted that one of them would betray them, John 13, 22, 
says that all of the disciples wondered who he was talking about. They were at a loss to figure out who he was describing. Nobody suspected Judas. Why? Because he looked like a branch. He looked like he was connected to the twelve. In fact, when Jesus says in uh, verse 2, when he says, every branch in in me, in me that does not bear fruit, that in me is not in Christ in a Pauline sense, meaning elect before the foundation of the world and all of those spiritual blessings that Paul means when he uses that phrase. Jesus is there, and this is the only way Jesus could have described it, is one who is outwardly attached. These are the superficial, shallow, uncommitted, committed people. The unbelieving believers, quote-unquote believers. And when you understand that what is being described by the fruitless branch is the Judas branches, then all of a sudden this analogy fits perfectly with all of the other analogies that we've seen in John's gospel. You remember one of the things that John, what John writes his gospel for is so that we might believe and that by believing we might have life in his name. Well, one of the things that John has done over and over is contrast true belief with false belief. Do you remember that? We have seen this over and over in John's gospel. There is the true believer and there are the false believers. And we saw it back in chapter 2. When in Jerusalem, after he cleansed the temple, John says many people believed in him. And he uses the word for believe and for have faith. But John says, Jesus did not commit himself to any of them because he understood their hearts. And he knew that they believed in him because of the signs that he did. It wasn't true regeneration. Jesus didn't commit himself to them because they were not committed to him in a saving sense. Though they did believe in him. We saw it in John chapter 6. Remember the multitudes came to him and he fed them and they were ready to make him king. Take him by force and make him king. They believed he was the son of David. They believed he was the Messiah. They believed he could do miracles and signs. And they were willing to make him king. They believed in an outward, in a shallow, and an uncommitted sense. But then when Jesus gave them all the hard teaching about the sovereignty of God in salvation, how they cannot come to him apart from divine grace, and how they must eat his flesh and drink his blood, and the true life comes in being vitally attached to him, guess what happened? Remember? Everybody left. They walked away. said, man, that's not for us. We're, whoa, whoa, wait, time out. Teaching is too strong at this point. We're... We're done. We didn't realize you were talking about that kind of radical commitment. And who was Jesus left with? The twelve? And he said to them, you want to leave also? Where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. And Jesus affirmed their faith. And then he said, but one of you is a devil. And in John chapter 6, we saw that important lesson that not everybody who gets really excited about Jesus actually belongs to him. Not everybody who's willing to make him king actually owns him as Savior and Lord. They don't actually belong to him. They weren't actually given to him by the Father. We saw it in John chapter 8, where right after it says that the Pharisees believed in him, Jesus said to them, you're still sons of Satan, you're still slaves of sin, and you're still trying to kill me. And they said, we are not. You know what they did? Picked up stones to try and stone him and kill him. Proving that not everybody who believes in Jesus is actually believers. This analogy is the same truth. It is the same thing. It is the same warning. These are not genuine believers who are cut off and perish. These are people who were never believers. Like Judas, he was never a believer. He is the branch cut off. And let me offer you one more proof, and I think this one is from the text, that what Jesus has in mind here is Judas. Look at verse 3. Sorry, the end of verse 2, first of all. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. The word translated prune there is the word kathare, kathare, and it is a word that literally means cleans, or purifies. And it's translated prunes because of the analogy and because of the reference to the vine dresser. And so in that type of a context, you would translate that as prune. He, all the fruitful branches, he prunes, he cuts, he cleans, he clear, he purifies. Now look at verse three. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Same word. 
But it's an adjective form instead of a verb form. It's the same word, katharoi. And indicating that Jesus is meaning here more than just a physical cutting, he's actually referring here to some sort of spiritual cleansing. So who are the you in verse 3? Who's being addressed? It's the 11 disciples, right? You are clean. He doesn't make any qualifications. He doesn't say some of you aren't, some of you are. Just in some sense, all 11 of you have been already pruned, cut, and cleaned and purified through the word that I have spoken to you. Now, interestingly, John only uses that word clean one other time in his entire gospel. And it's back in chapter 13, and I want you to turn there. Back to chapter 13. You'll see it in verse 9 and following. 13, verse 9, and this happens at the foot washing. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. There's that word again. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So in this context, John chapter 13, Jesus says, you are clean, Katharoi, but one of you, one of you is not. And he knew who would betray him. And that one is excluded. He is accepted from that group who is clean. Now back in chapter 15, verse 3, we have the same author using the same word, the same evening in the same context to describe the very same thing. And what is he saying in John chapter 13 or 15? You, the 11, you're clean. Remember? But in this context, he doesn't say, but not all of you. Why? Because the unclean one has already left. Judas departed at the end of chapter 13. Jesus is describing here and describing clean branches, pruned branches. He's describing the 11. But the one who is not clean, not pruned, who has already left, he, Judas, is the false branch. He is the one who is outwardly connected to Christ and outwardly connected only. He had no vital life. He produced no spiritual fruit. None whatsoever. Now, now you may ask the question, well, why then didn't Jesus specifically say Judas? That's what I wanted to know. Why didn't Jesus specifically say, look, the unclean branch is, the, is Judas. He, he left. He, he was cut off. The Father took him out. He left. He departed. He did not remain, continue, and abide. He left, and he's the one that is going to be cast aside, dried up, and burned with fire. It's Judas, guys. It's Judas. He's the unclean branches. Why didn't he identify him as such? For two reasons, I think. First, because even up to this point, Jesus has not publicly identified Judas. Remember that? There was a time around the, the table when Peter signaled to John and said, hey, who's he talking about? Because John was next to Jesus. And John leaned back on against Jesus' breast because they were reclining at the table. He said, who are you talking about? When you're talking about betraying, who are you talking about? And Jesus says, the one who, with whom I dip in the bread. And he handed the morsel to Judas, and Judas dipped, and that identified Judas for John. But that was John, and possibly Peter understood who that was. But even there, Judas left, and they thought they went to go buy something for the feast or to go give money to the poor. They had no idea that that betrayal, that that traitor, was going out to do the very deed that evening. They still were kind of oblivious to it. So even in chapter 15, at this late in the evening, still the disciples do not understand that Judas is the one who is betraying him. In fact, the first time that they would understand who it was that was betraying them would be in the garden when Judas showed up with an detachment of troops to arrest Jesus. That's the first time that they would clue into who Judas is. And I think that if Jesus had identified him and said, look, the one you're wondering about is Judas, and he's betraying me, and he's on his way to the garden right now with a detachment of troops, and we have to get to the garden to meet them there so that I can be arrested tonight. If he had explained all of that to them, it would have shocked them, and they would have missed the whole point of the entire analogy. So he keeps it secret for that reason. There's a second reason, I think, that he does not identify Judas explicitly in the text, and it's for this reason. This category is much broader than just Judas. And that's important to keep in mind. Judas is an illustration of this category of people. But he does not define this category of people. And if Jesus had said, 
the one who is betraying me is the unfruitful branch. And we would all be tempted to say, oh, well, I'm not actively betraying the Son of God for 30 pieces of silver, so I guess I don't fall in that category. Right? We would unnecessarily narrow that down. But what Jesus has in mind is a much broader category of people. You see, the fruitless branches, they are people who have grown up in Christian homes and they have attended church services all of their life and they have been baptized and they have taken communion and they have done the Christian thing and they have an outward show of righteousness and they are part of the group of people and nobody around them, nobody who knows them would ever expect that they are fruitless branches, but they are. It's the self-righteous people. It's the people who are not trusting in Christ. It's the people who actually produce no spiritual fruit and no, no spiritual life whatsoever, but they have an outward attachment, a visible attachment. You would never guess that they don't actually belong to Christ because they appear as if they are connected to him. It's not just traitors. Though Judas illustrates this type of person, he does not define this category. This category is much broader. That's why I say it is Judas and everybody like him who appears connected to the people of Christ, to the body of Christ, and to the vine. But they're not actually connected to the vine. They just suck the life out of the branches. They just drain the branches. But they don't actually produce any fruit because the life of the vine does not flow in them. The life of the branches flows in them. And they can look like a branch, and they can put on the appearances of a branch, and they can act like branches and smell like branches and appear like branches, but they're not actually true branches. They don't actually bear spiritual fruit because they do not have the life of the vine in them. Now, what are we to take away from this? Two things, I think. There's an encouragement here to unbelievers. To unbelievers. And the encouragement is this. You should not think that just because you are outwardly attached to a body of people, a group of people who are a church and call themselves Christians, that you therefore have eternal life abiding in you. That does not make you a Christian. You could be. This is an encouragement to unbelievers to examine yourself to see if you actually be in the faith. To examine yourself and say, is the life of the vine in me? Or am I just attached to this group of people because I've always been attached to this group of people? Or do, have I really turned from my sin, repented of my sin, and believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ? Do I really have eternal life abiding in me? This is a warning to the false branches who, who make an appearance of being true branches, and they even try and manufacture counterfeit, counterfeit spiritual fruit. They do this for the sake of, of fitting in. And really what they are is fruitless branches who are fit only for destruction, just to be burned. And if you have attached yourself to a body of people, and you don't actually have eternal life abiding in you, this should be a warning to you that on Judgment Day, your appearance of connection to the body of Christ will do you no good. You will be cast away. And so you ought to examine yourself and give no rest to the state of your soul until your soul rests only in Jesus Christ and Him alone for eternal life. Then this is an encouragement to believers. Encouragement to believers. This entire analogy is not intended to terrify us so that we might say, oh man, am I abiding at this moment or could I be cut off at any moment? Is the Father going to pluck me away and throw me into hell at any moment? That's not the point of the analogy. The point of the analogy is to show that those who are truly connected and have vital life in Jesus Christ, they will and do abide. And the life of the vine lives in them and he produces fruit in them and they are secure and they will never be cut off. A true fruit-bearing branch that manifests genuine eternal life, they will never be cut off. They will be pruned. They will be cut back so that they might produce more fruit. And so the encouragement to us is to rest in the work of the vine dresser and understand that the vine dresser does what he does for our good. The pruning is, is painful. Yes, it is. We're going to get to that next week. The pruning is painful. But we ought never to resist or resent the pruning of the vine dresser, knowing that his goal in our life is always fruitfulness. And the vine dresser loves the vine 
And the vine dresser loves the branches that are connected to the vine. And the vine dresser sees in the branches the image of the vine and the fruit of the vine. And he cherishes them and he prunes them so that they might bear more fruit. All that the vine dresser does, he does for the good of his people and for the glory of his name. And we can rest in that. Rest assured that we will never be cut off because a true branch that bears fruit, who's connected to that vine, always abides and continues in that vine. There's security, not insecurity, in this analogy. And next week we will look at the work of the vine dresser in pruning the vine, how he does it, and uh, what he does and to what end. Let's pray together. Our gracious Father, we are so thankful for the encouragement of your word. And there are difficult things here for us to embrace and accept, but we are very grateful that you've made them clear and, and helped us to think clearly on them. We want to honor you by uh, constantly abiding and continuing in the grace that you've given to us. And so we know that we can put forth the effort to do that in a way that will honor you and that you will honor that by continuing to keep us in Christ. We thank you that the grace of salvation is a permanent grace. It is an eternal grace, and the life that we have is eternal life, not a temporary life. So we rest in that. We thank you for it. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to prune us and that you would continue to produce fruitfulness in us. We thank you that the work of that life and the work of bearing fruit is a work that is done in and by your Spirit who dwells in us and because of the life that we have from Christ. And may the words of this morning be as severe and stern reminder to all who appear to be branches but have no true eternal life. Grant them repentance and draw sinners to yourself that you might be glorified in the salvation of many people. And we pray that you would continue to produce fruit in our lives to the glory of your name. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.